You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Steve, and uh, I get to share this morning with all of us. And we are starting a new series on Galatians, but before we begin diving into that, I did want to take a few minutes and um, discuss something that has been uh, a really sort of instrumental thing in my life um, as a Christian. I need to put a, this over here. And has, uh, yeah, just something that I've always valued and, and had, you know, my, especially as a married person, Ron and I have always been um, involved with this. And, and I think it's something that for every Christian is an important thing to do. And that is home groups. Um, or small groups, or community groups, or tribes, as we one time called it uh, here at Grassroots Once Upon a Time. Um, home groups are uh, just smaller groups of this, essentially. And, uh, I, and I think this is a really, uh, like I said, an integral part of being a disciple of Jesus and learning what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Um, last or two weeks ago when we had the direction shaping conversation as a community, some of the feedback that came over and over and over again was um, that people wanted grassroots to be a disciple building context, a, a place where we can work on building um, ourselves and each other up as disciples, uh, to meet each other's needs, to have meaningful connections. Uh, a safe space to wrestle with our doubts and our questions and our challenges to our faith um, without fear of, you know, judgment or whatever. And a place to just do life together was one of the quotes. I want a place to just do life together. And I can't think of a more apt context than home groups or small groups for that to take place in. And so this is an integral part of the grassroots ministry. And I encourage all of us... Um, as much as possible. I know life can be busy and, and there's all sorts of demands, but where possible, if you're a member of this community or you're thinking about becoming a member of this community or you want to just dive into uh, sort of a little deeper into this life here at Grassroots and your life as a follower of, uh, of Jesus, to consider joining one of these home groups. Um, I want to provide just sort of a really brief outline as to like a framework as to what we, to kind of help us understand um, why we do home groups and what you can expect to get out of home groups. And I'm stealing this or adapting this from North Point Community Church's uh, model of home groups that they use and they call it the ABCs and I'm ad adjusting it a little bit. So their ABCs are going to be a little bit different. Mine are A squared, BCDs of home groups and uh, you'll see why. So first of all is accountability, and I'm going to sneak in there authenticity as well. So accountability and authenticity within the context of home groups. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that this is not an easy game. <laughs> this life that we are called to live has its challenges, there are setbacks, and uh, there are struggles that we all have throughout uh, our lives, both whatever kind of context we come from. And so home groups serve as a space where we can hold each other accountable and uh, in grace and in love to encourage each other on in, our, um, in the race that we're called to run as Jesus followers. And so there's this accountability, and I have found that um, with accountability, uh, it's much easier and much 
more doable when there is a posture of authenticity that is within that group. And if you are being real with one another and there is a relationship of trust that, is, that exists within that small group context, um, it's much easier to share our struggles and to share the challenges that we have each day and, and throughout our lives with whatever context we're coming from. And so um, having that accountability and that authenticity, I think, kind of go hand in hand. And then there is this sense of belonging. And uh, we at Grassroots, you know, we're a smaller, smallish enough group. Uh, we also hopefully belong or have this sense of belonging here in this larger community. But that it's that much more within the small group context. And uh, home groups or I, I kind of go back and forth between home groups and, and small groups. Forgive me. Home groups, to me, I think, um, convey uh, sort of this resistance to the stark individuality, the stark go-it-alone um, ethos that the world kind of pushes and says, that's you know, the highest value. You've got to be able to do it on your own. We kind of say, ah, we can't do it alone. <laughs> it's sort of this submission to be like, you know what? We've tried doing it alone. We've tried going it alone. We've tried kind of the individual rah, rah, rah. Let's just, you know, alter, you know elevate the self. Let's just do and it just doesn't work out. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you've been part of home groups in your life, you'll probably agree that being part of a group of humans who help each other out in life is a beautiful thing and just makes it so much easier. Um, and so there is this sense that if you don't make the home group, that you're missed. And that's kind of a nice feeling. Like, oh, where were you last time? And it's not judging or whatever. It's like, actually, we missed your presence in this group. Um, And that's a good feeling. It's a good feeling to want to belong to something. And so accountability, um, authenticity, belonging, and then caring. And this is, uh, to to a degree, this is just sort of like the practical... You know, we want to do life together, and we all have needs. And everyone, everyone has their own issues and their own things that they're going through. You know, maybe, maybe you need a date night. Um, maybe you are moving. Maybe you're a single parent trying to figure this out, and you just need a hand, someone to help lift you up. Um, whatever, you know, maybe you had a baby, and you need meals. Whatever those t- practical needs are in your life, um, we want home groups to help minister and help m- meet those needs to some degree, uh, recognizing there's a larger body to draw from here as well. But home groups really play that special role in uh, meeting our actual physical um, needs throughout the week and throughout our lives. And then finally, the other one that I added on, and this kind of comes out of, again, the feedback that came in the direction shaping conversation, and I think it's super true, is discipleship. Discipleship is a... Uh, an integral part of being a follower of Jesus. It's something that we're always on, a journey that we're always on. And so discipleship um, happens. You know, you, you come here and listen to me preach for 25 minutes, 35 minutes, okay, 40. I'm, listen, I'm working on that, Bill. And uh, we'll get there short. We'll get to shorter. But my point is, if you come here and listen to me or whoever speak on a Sunday morning for any length of time, and you think that that is the um, some total of discipleship that you need in your life, I'm going to challenge you and say it's not. Um, you know, you might think, wow, what a great message that was on Sunday morning. It really it revved you up. It got you energized. And then I bet you by Tuesday at the latest, if I were to say, what was that message about on Sunday? 90% of us won't have a clue including myself. I'm not judging. 
And so Sunday morning sermons are not where we receive our best discipleship. Best discipleship, I think, happens within the context of community, and community happens throughout the week. And so um, those are the A, B, C, A squared, B, C, Ds of home groups that we at Grassroots want to promote, and this is why we are promoting this ministry. And so I'm really encouraging all of us this morning uh, and those online who are part of our community to, um, to consider joining a home group. Now, uh, so this is the book of Galatians, and we're going to uh, dive into this. I'm calling it Avoiding a Divided Table Over Differing Tastes. Uh, avoiding a Divided Table Over Differing Tastes is just a lovely alliteration to it, which is why I went with it. But I do recognize that when we're talking about this topic, we're talking about unity that comes in the midst of our convictions and the things that we hold on strongest. And when I call that taste, it seems to sort of minimize or water down our convictions. And so it's maybe not the best term to use here, but go with it because it's lovely alliteration. Okay, avoiding a divided table over differing tastes. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on this. Full disclosure, I have no idea how long we're going to take on this. Um, I just started preparing this this week, and I was like, this is just blowing my mind, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning, but it might be like next week's or last week, or it might be like five weeks down the road, right? might be the next one. I don't know. We'll just see how it goes, and we'll play by year, and I hope you're okay with that. Um, I am leaning heavily on this book. This book is by uh, Dr. Mark Baker. It's called Freedom from Religiosity and Judgmentalism, Studies in Paul's Letters to the Galatians, and uh, you may remember Mark's um, or Dr. Baker's uh, name from the Jesus Collective that we've been talking about over the last couple of months. He helped form the fifth marker, which is we are defined by a shared center, not the lines that we draw. And if you remember um, that bounded, fuzzy, and centered set model that he set up, well, he didn't set it up, he got it from someone else, but he utilizes I'm seeing a lot of blank stares, uh, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks as well. Anyway, he came up with a lot of that stuff. He did his uh, PhD uh, centered around Galatians at Duke University. So the guy knows his stuff. He's an academic, and a, um, but he's also got his feet like firmly planted in ministry. He does ministry at a prison, and he's been a missionary for years and years in Latin America. And, uh, and so, anyway, a lot of his insights and a lot of his uh, reflections come from, are born out of his own experience. Um, and so, the reason we are looking at Galatians is um, because we suck at disagreeing, frankly. Um, for example, Rhonda and I have been married for 19 years, and uh, she's the love of my life. I um, respect her probably more than any other human. And this week, she um, and I got into a fight about her inability to know any passwords on her computer <laughs> or to do anything on her computer without my help. And I was pretty annoyed with her about that. And at the same time, like simultaneously, she got quite annoyed with me, I'll be honest, <laughs> because of my inability to stay on task and my tendency or propensity to be distracted by every single whim on the internet. And uh, so I watch her, like we work together now at home. 
And it's lovely. And I watch her just like, go, 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 all day. And I am like, Rhonda, settle down. And she just like looks at me and it's like, Steven, pick it up. And so we had this sort of like dispute. Um, one about her inability to know passwords, my inability to stay focused, to get the job done. And I see, I hear a lot of giggles because I know you as married couples either know us or you know yourselves and realizing, yeah, this is something very familiar. Now, my point is, Ron and I are married and um, we've been married for 19 years. And I would say this is the person that I respect and adore more than probably any other, well, not probably, more than any other person in the world. And yet these disputes and arguments, and full disclosure, we haven't like arrived at a solution or we haven't like, oh, okay, so now we know how to move forward here. We're still in the midst of that and it's messy. And um, so that's a married couple. But now take that aside and if you will, just consider in your mind a small group of humans uh, who attend a church together. And that shouldn't be too hard. You can look around and say, oh, this is a church. Now, picture that for a second, and I want you to throw into that mix um, strong religious convictions, okay? And fair warning, there are not too many convictions that are stronger than our religious convictions. So you've got that. Now I want you to also throw into that mix um, your experiences, your own traditions, right? Your own influences, the books you read, the people that have spoken into your life. And all of that goes into how you read this Bible that we submit shows us how to live, or teaches us how to live. And so all of those things now for each of us, our experiences, our traditions, the influences in our life, all inform each of us how we read this ancient, this ancient text. And now, just for, run, just for fun, I want you also to throw into the, to the mix this deep conviction that your convictions have eternal stakes. And that if you get this wrong, there's eternity to pay. And then, let's all just get along and agree that we can believe all the same stuff and agree on all of these things together and just assume that this is not that hard. It's no wonder we suck at disagreeing because we all bring so much to the table when we walk into that door about our assumptions, about our understanding of scripture, about our understanding of our faith, the traditions, the rituals, all of those things, each of us have our own baggage, our own experience with that, and we think we're right. And that's the problem. We all think we're right. And maybe some of us are, but how do we know? And so this is why we want to look at the book of Galatians. Because we're just not great at finding unity. And, and the thing is, unity is what Jesus called us to. Um, I shared this a couple weeks ago, but I think I just keep drawing back to this. This is Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17. He says, I pray that they will all be one. That's us. I mean, he's praying for his disciples. You and I are his disciples. That they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus prays for unity among 
his church, among his followers, because that is a demonstration to the world that God sent him. That's, a, and that's an evangelistic tool. Unity was a big deal to Jesus because he knew what, that when communities were one, the world would take notice. Now, let me just say this. Unity does not equal uniformity, right? We are not called to sort of, you know, a monolithic. We all have to think the exact same way. We all have to believe the exact same things. We all have to look the same way, whatever. That's not what Jesus is praying for. Uniformity is not the same as unity. And as we dive into Galatians, we're going to see that that's exactly the case. But, and so he's not praying for uniformity. He's praying for unity, that we would be one, that we would be united in him. And today, there are um, no shortage of issues that seek to divide us over. Offhand, this is my own personal experience, churches that I know of either directly or I've seen recently um, or I've heard you know, through friends or whatever that have split in the last few years. These are just some of the issues. Uh, churches have split. Churches have divided. Churches have um, splintered over styles of worship over who is allowed to take communion with them, uh, over submitting to governing authorities. What's, what is the, uh, the right approach to submit to governing authorities? We don't agree on that? Well, we're going to go this way and we're going to go this way. Over whether we allow or include LGBT plus folks into our community and whether we allow them to worship with us and see them as the same as us. That's caused a lot of splits. In fact, that's causing a huge uproar right now in the church in the States. Um, over vaccines, I don't know if any of you heard about that. <laughs> churches have caused, churches have split over vaccines. And uh, head coverings, which I talked about a couple weeks ago. Head coverings, I mean, it's head coverings. That's what it is. That has caused churches to split. And that's just my own experience. If you've been a, a follower of Jesus for any length of time or uh, been part of a church, you likely have heard of or maybe you've even been part of any number of disagreements either within the church or imposed from the world into the church that have caused a split or fracturing uh, or at the very least a strong disagreement that we can't see eye to eye on and so we'll just ignore those people over there and we'll do our thing over here. And so this is why we are tackling um, Galatians. To answer this question, in our disagreements, how can we avoid repeating the same outcome that leads to divides, splits, fragments within the church? How do we avoid this? And I think Galatians has some insight for us. Um, now, some of the more biblically astute within this community, and there are many of you, might be saying to yourself right now, well, Stephen, I've been reading the book of Galatians my entire life, and this is not a book about community well-being or unity. This is a book about theology. Specifically, this is a book about our salvation and how we are saved. Um, and let me say this, sure, yes. But also, no. Um, 
But let's back up before we even get into that. We, we do know at the outset here that Paul is fairly upset in his writing here. He's, he's in passion. There's this sense of urgency that he has, and he writes the book of Galatians. Uh, we read passages like this in Galatians 1.6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Uh, 3.1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly, clearly portrayed as crucified. Uh, and again, Galatians 5.12, I just wish that those troublemakers, and we'll talk about who those troublemakers are, who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. And I've read one of the passages says, uh, or one of the translations says, would go all the way and cut everything off. You can read between the lines and figure out what he's talking about there. So Paul is fairly upset fairly impassioned as he's writing this letter. And we want to ask the question this morning, why is he so impassioned? Um, Now, we know that there were Christians in Galatia that were concerned about tensions and confusion in the church. And so he writes a letter in response to those tensions and confusions. But we really only have one side of the conversation. So when we're trying to discern sort of the motive behind this letter, the, the reason for his energy, his passion... We only have one side of the conversation. You ever listen to a one-sided conversation? Um, you know, it's like Chandler's just talking there, and Joey's in the back, and he's like, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? What are you? And all Joey can do is listen to one side of the conversation uh, and figure out what is being said or what the conversation is about based on Chandler's side. And that's kind of what we have here in this story. We have uh, the letter itself, but we don't know much about the situation in Galatia as well. And so uh, we have to do some kind of digging and we have to look at the letter itself, obviously, to get those details. Um, now, so for the past 500 years, the church has largely not done that. They've largely not dug into the full context of the church of Galatia, uh, the churches in Galatia, and the situation that they're reading or they're coming out of. Instead, what we've done um, is we've looked at this book of the Bible, this beautiful book of the Bible, through the lens of the great reformer Martin Luther. Now, hold up. Some of you at this point might be like, listen, Steve, I'm not really concerned uh, with what Luther did or said or how this has anything to do with this book. Just tell me about Galatians already. Tell me what I need to know here. And, um, you know, and that's, that's fine. I, if you want to check out right now for the next few minutes while we uh, dive a little bit into historical theology, you're more than welcome to do that. Maybe you can go sign up for a home group. Um, I will take no offense if you want to. I'll let you know when it's time to chime back in or to, to, to clue back in here. Um, but for the rest of us, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that his big thing was, uh, who knows what Martin, like what's the, what's the big thing that Martin Luther stood on? There was somebody say with passion. We are saved by faith. We are justified by faith alone. Amen. And um, solified is is sort of like the Latin that uh, he would uh, have said. Not our good works, right? It's faith. And so, like all of us, though, Luther approaches the scriptures out of a particular context and experience, and ultimately his own personal need. Um, And so one of the main impetuses for the Reformation to begin with, and I'm not a historical theologian here at all, but I know the Reformation and I've done my studies in that regard. Um, One of the main impetuses for the the Reformation was the system of indulgences that the church, the Catholic church at the time, had imposed on its followers. 
And this was a transactional system that consisted of, you know, rituals and prayers and mostly money being exchanged for the absolving of sin and for their salvation. If you're familiar with the Reformation, that's kind of the thing that, re- that Luther really sort of, that was a big part of his 95 Theses that he uh, nailed to the wall or to the door. And, and this is sort of the thing that started everything. And so this was front of mind in Luther's life at the time. And he begins to read the scriptures, and he comes across Romans, and he comes across Galatians and passages like this, where we know that a person is not justified by faith, or, uh, or sorry, justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he's like, wait a second, the church has duped me. And uh, he reads, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Oh, okay. And so he's reading passages like that, and he finds this beautiful truth within that we are indeed justified through faith alone. And in emphasizing this, Luther has actually shaped the way that many of us approach the book of Galatians today, even those who maybe have never read anything by Luther or even really thought about this stuff before. Um, And this, for Luther, met a need, a a very strong need. He struggled to find peace with God through this works system. Uh, And then when he comes across this, it's like this light turns on, and all of a sudden he's like, wow, I understand this now. And he experiences peace with God. And so this becomes his entire message everywhere he goes, justified by faith, you're saved by faith, you're saved by faith, you're saved by faith. And it's a beautiful truth in scripture that we all hold to this day and and believe. Um, And so, yes, we can definitely see how this is a theme in the epistle of Galatians. But the question is, is this the central reason? Is this the main idea behind why Paul is writing this letter to the churches of Galatia to begin with? Um, is it to correct some errant theology, you know, some doctrine that these Galatians have gotten hooped by? Um, and by the way, those who maybe checked out, I invite you to check back in now. Uh, let's get back to that one-sided phone call. If you're listening to that conversation, and all of a sudden the person that you're listening to says, oh, you know what, that reminds me of a story you, you know, Sherlock Holmes would be very proud of you if you suddenly tuned in or like, there's going to be a clue revealed here about what this conversation is about. And we kind of get that with Galatians. Um, so if we look at Galatians 2, 11 through 14, this is what we read. Uh, Paul essentially says, oh, that reminds me of this story. And then he begins to tell this story. All right. And he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. Oh, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish, that's hard to read, I apologize. um, Other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish tradition? Hmm. 
So let's think about this for a sec. Here's this story that is not directly related to the people in Galatia. This is in Antioch. You know it's a good sermon when there's a map. Here we have Antioch. Oh, does this work? I'm hoping it does. Okay, everybody look at Antioch in the bottom right. Does everyone see it? I was really hoping this would work. It's supposed to have this thing on it. Anyway, Antioch, bottom right there. And then look at the region of Galatia, way up far away. So this is not a story that's taking place in Galatia or any of the area around Galatia. This is a faraway story. And Paul is recounting a story to this church that took place somewhere else. So he's not just randomly telling a story because, oh, this just came to mind and I thought I'd share it. No, people don't typically do that. This is a story that has direct bearing on the people of Galatia. And so first we need to get at the significance of this moment in Antioch. And now, I can't emphasize this enough, but in the first century, biblical times, um, to share a meal with someone had massive repercussions, had massive significance. He gets it. Bill gets it. Bill's done his reading. This is what uh, Dr. Baker says. He says, to invite someone to share a meal communicated acceptance and honor. It was not done casually. Or, you know, like, let's just go grab Subway and eat together as coworkers. No, this is not something you would do back then. They didn't have a Subway. They didn't, Subway didn't come around until... When? Like 1900? Anyway, folks. Uh, in the world of Jesus, Peter, and Paul, the Jews used the dinner table, along with circumcision and Sabbath observance, to foster unity amongst their people and to create a sense of distinction from non-Jews. By excluding non-Jews from the table, Jews could maintain their distinctive religious and cultural identities. And so it was a means of fostering unity between uh, within a group of people. And nobody would have thought that this was odd because this was how it was done in this day. Um, it was the norm to separate into your class, into uh, your religious differences, into your economic statuses, right? Slaves and owners. Um, whatever societal group you were a part of, that is who you ate a meal with. And that was the accepted norm. So for us, we have to begin, as we dive into the series, we have to begin just recognizing the absolute significance of that. Okay, that's huge. Um, And Peter's a good Jew who would have observed this just like everyone else did at the time. But then something happens. He encounters Jesus. And uh, so Jesus, of course, subverts everything, as he tends to do. And in Acts 10, if you'll recall... Uh, there is a story in which Peter has this dream. And Peter's a bit slow, dim-witted, um, or he's just a product of his context, which all of us are. And so he has, you know, this dream is, uh, you're, you're familiar with it, God brings down a sheet of animals that are clean and unclean, and he says, eat, and he's like, no! He's like, no, no, it's okay, eat. And Peter's like, no! And then he takes up the sheet and it comes down. It happens like two or three times before Peter finally gets the message that, hey, there's no such thing as clean and unclean anymore. We can all be together. I mean, it's a very simplified version of what that story is about, but that's essentially the gist of it. And actually, the next chapter in Acts, you see him go into a Gentile home um, and they, I don't remember what they do. They have like a, a gathering and they, they uh, 
I think, is it Nicodemus? Or is it a centurion? It's a centurion's home. And Peter actually says, God has showed me that you and I can be together here. Because before that, Jews and Gentiles, never. And so there's like this boom moment where Jesus, because of the gospel of Jesus, he is showing there are no differences between Jew and Gentile. And so Peter has that now. Um, as he's meeting in Antioch, he knows. And so when, he, they, when we first come across this story in Antioch, Peter, because he's had this beautiful dream, knows that he can eat with non-Jews, and it's cool. And so he's eating there. But then these friends of James come. We don't know much about them. We know that they are Jewish Christians. They're coming from sort of the mother church in Jerusalem. And they, despite having interacted with the resurrected Jesus, they are Christians, have not been able to arrive at a place in their own faith and in their own theology that allows them to eat with Gentiles. Um, And so they still are separated from the Gentiles. And so they would eat over here, and the Gentile Christians are over here with Peter, and Peter feels their judgy glances feels the daggers they are shooting into him from behind. His back is like, ugh. He's getting that because they, coming from the mother church, are like, hey, this is how it's supposed to be done. We're Jews. We're separated from everyone else. We are God's special people, right? And so they're starting to, we don't know what they say, but they start to cast sort of judgment on Peter. And Peter buckles under that scrutiny. He buckles under that pressure, And he leaves the Gentile table and he goes and sits with his Jewish Christian friends. And then Paul tells us that because Peter is an influential dude, I mean, this is Jesus' disciple, other people were like, oh, okay. And so they started following Peter, including Barnabas. And so these people start following Peter and now all of a sudden, what do we have? We have a split. We have the Jewish Christians over here, and we have the Gentile Christians over here. And you can start to see how this is going to be a problem for the church. Right? Now, before you come to Paul's side and start bashing Peter for caving to pressure in that moment, let me ask you, have you ever been shamed into compliance? Maybe at school, maybe at work, maybe at church. A couple, uh, or a couple weeks ago, I told you about that, that um, issue in the Bahamas where we used to live about head coverings. And when we first moved down there, um, you know, we're brand new in this community and brand new in this one church that uh, sponsored the school that we taught at. And they're a traditional conservative school that really emphasized head coverings. Now, we don't come from a head covering wearing context. But we walked into that, and we, Ron and I decided, like, yeah, you should probably wear a head covering. Not because we believed it, not that we had any conviction toward it, but because all these old ladies would, like, hand her a doily uh, head covering. And we were like, oh, okay. And so we just kind of did it. And, you know, what are you supposed to say there? You know, like, oh, sorry, I actually think this is just a cultural thing that, you know, that passage in Corinthians doesn't really apply to us today that was relevant to there. And actually, I believe this is uh, a tendency toward legalism. And no. No, you do not say stuff like that. You just put on the head covering and you um, follow. And that's, you know, you can say, oh, shame on you for not standing up for yourself or blah, blah, blah. But in those cultural moments, there are, there's wisdom in just complying. 
Uh, I'm not saying there's wisdom in what Peter did here. He got called out. But um, my point is, we've all been there. You go along with something because it's easier than making a scene, right? And uh, so maybe let's see ourselves in Peter's response to the Jewish Christian pressure that they're putting on. The bigger problem here, which Paul notes, was that Peter is influential, just like I said. And so he is now uh, coaxing other people over to his side. And you can bet that there is shame that he is feeling. He knows better than to do this, but he still does it. Um, and so, again, in this world, there was, in the first century world, there was this division everywhere between slaves and masters, between the haves and the have-nots, between the wealthy and the poor, uh, the different religions, the Jews and Gentiles. You name it, there was a rationale for disunity everywhere you looked, and yet Jesus comes along and he says, that is irrelevant in my kingdom. In my kingdom, all of us shall be together. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. Um, And so we see a unified dream, a unified table, where all of the labels and differences fall by the wayside. And this is what the new creation that Paul talks about in chapter 6 is. He says this, it doesn't matter whether we've been, this is after he's given his, this is at the end of the letter. He said, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and his mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. And so this community at Antioch had actually been expressing this new creation model right there in the midst of a world that was starkly divided along all sorts of ethnic and religious and economic lines. They were being the very people of God as God had intended the church to be. They were being the answer to prayer that Jesus had prayed in John 17. Right? That they may all be one. They were showing the world a better way of getting on with one another. It wasn't compliance. It wasn't uniformity. It was unity. Until it wasn't. Peter caves to pressure. Barnabas and others begin to follow. And before you know it, suddenly it's looking a lot less like this new creation model of humanity and more like the same old, same old that we all know. The church is suddenly not looking very different from the world around them. Sound familiar? So again, I ask, why is there such a sense of urgency with Paul in his letter to the Galatians? Because the new creation community whose radical unity testifies to God's love for all is on the verge of collapsing and resembling the old creation ways. And Paul did not want to see that happen. And I'm convinced that if Paul were to write a letter to the church at Grassroots today, or any other church in this community, it would probably have the same tone, this sense of urgency that, listen, there are things that can divide you, and we'll get into those things, 
There are things that can divide you that are happening right now in your midst, and I am pleading with you, don't be naive. Don't fall into that trap. And so this, friends, is why we are looking at Galatians this morning. It's not because I'm scared that all of you have gone errant in your theology of salvation and are suddenly adding good works to your salvation. I don't think that's happening. And that's not why we're looking at Galatians. Um, it's because there are no shortages of issues that can, uh, and that are, being, that lines are being drawn over today. There's no shortages of issues that can separate us from one another. No shortages of issues that we can use and justify to create walls, that we can use to create fences, and that we can use to justify eating at different tables from one another. And yet Jesus is calling us to resist this. And where we failed, like Peter, there's a need for repentance. There's a need for a better way forward which is what we will explore in the series as we move forward. Um, and so let's stop there this morning. Uh, I think there's a lot, uh, and it's a really late. I'm going to invite uh, Rhonda to come up. And actually, we're going to, it's Thanksgiving Day today as well, friends. Did you know this? We didn't really give much recognition to that. But it is Thanksgiving, and as Christians, we obviously want to, um, uh, to have a posture of gratitude in all things. And, uh, and so as we uh, close this morning, as we come up for the bread and the cup, I'm going to invite everyone to stand. We're going to change things up a little bit differently. Before they begin their music, um, I have a short liturgy, a prayer of gratitude that uh, it's a call and response. It comes from um, a book called Common Prayer by Shane Claiborne and some of his friends. And so I'm going to read a section, and then there's a part in yellow that you folks would read as well. So everyone stand. Awesome. Shake it off. Okay, um, so this is a prayer. We're going to sing together, or we're going to say it together. Uh, then as the music starts, you are welcome to come up and um, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, I'm hoping that this will be a moment where we can kind of turn our hearts and our attention, um, shift it a little bit from here, what we were talking about, about unity this morning, but, all, but focus on gratitude now in these last few minutes of our service together. So it says this, Lord God, creator of all, in your wisdom, you have bound us together so that we must depend on others for the food we eat, the resources we use, the gifts of your creation that bring life, health, and joy. Creator God, we give thanks. Holy be the hands that sew our clothes so that we do not have to go naked. Sacred be the hands that build our homes so that we do not have to be cold. Blessed be the hands that work the land so that we do not have to go hungry. Creator God, we give thanks. Holy be the feet of all who labor so that we might have rest. Sacred be the feet of all who run swiftly to stand with the oppressed. Blessed be the feet of all whose bodies are too broken or weary to stand. Creator God, we give thanks. Holy be the sound of children laughing to take away our sorrow. Sacred be the sound of water falling to take away our thirst. Blessed be the sound of your people singing to heal our troubled hearts. Creator God, we give thanks. Holy be the bodies of those who know hunger. Sacred be the bodies of those who are broken. Blessed be the bodies of those who suffer. In your mercy and grace, soften our callous hearts. Fill us with gratitude. For all the gifts you've given us. In your love, break down the walls that separate us and guide us along your path of peace. 
that we might humbly worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.